I'm going to take a pause from our lessons we've been doing on how we got here, cultural things, some historical things. They're a little bit different, I know, than what we usually do, which is focus on particular texts of Scripture. I understand that, and in some ways I make no apology for that because sometimes we just have to put in perspective the things that we are learning from the Scriptures and make them apply in a direct way to the things that we've been seeing around us. And we're going to continue those. But I just ran into a roadblock this week uh, about deciding which way to go with that exactly. And so I decided I'd change subject to some a more, a more popular and pleasant subject, <laughs> as you can see. The subject of hellfire. I won't give you any hellfire and brimstone. I'm more like give you hellfire and sarcasm. I can do that. So we might go that direction. But uh, we're going to pause our lessons on cultural situation we're in. We'll resume those soon. Maybe I can make it a little bit more uh, valuable to you in that sense. But I do want to talk about hell this morning, being hell-bent, which I culture, I think, seems to be hell-bent means it's just a, they're just actively seeking their own destruction, so many people are. Sometimes it's done out of just plain viciousness, not caring. I don't care if I go to hell, all my friends will be there. I don't care about hell. All the beer's going to be there, so I'm glad to go to hell. It's a viciousness about it, or a, or a foolishness. And then other people are burnt, bent that way simply because uh, they've been they've struggled with being damaged and hurt and with trauma. And the easy way to soothe that trauma in their own mind or experience are ways that lead them to self destruction and to hell. It's a sad situation. And there may be more of those people in our culture than those who are just intent on thumbing their nose at God, per se. But they both lead to the same place, unfortunately. We can get there, and we'll get there in both ways, end up being ways that where we glorify ourselves. And uh, and there's nothing that this age that we live in uh, is not intent on if it's not glorifying the self, the self-expression, our identity is the big thing now, which is, which is a total focus upon, I think, for example, that's why everybody's all tattooed in our culture. It isn't, you know, used to be, well, they're all satanic, or I, I don't believe all that. I don't care if you have tattoos. But as a whole culture is engulfed in ink, it, it's why is that? It's because you individually get to mark your body for yourself you get to express your own body, and nobody can turn away from it. they got to look at it because you've marked yourself this way. So it's a cultural thing. Some people do, once again, they do that innocently, get a dove or a flower or something. Other people do it much more directly. I love the people. If I got a tattoo, it would quote Leviticus. Thou should not make any marks upon your body. You know, it would be something a little bit more direct in God's face, you know. Just quote the Bible about what he says about marking yourself up like the pagans. That would be a great tattoo, by the way. I'm sure it's out there. Uh, let's go to the book of Mark. We'll just begin here. One of the things about hell in the Bible and the doctrine of hell is greatly misunderstood. Maybe I can clarify a few things for you today about this doctrine. But it is a, it is a subject that is most talked about by Jesus Christ. So here again, this thing we've seen several times recently of people saying, 
I love Jesus, but I don't believe in all that foolish stuff in the Bible. Okay, you got a problem. You got Jesus mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he mentions, uh, uh, Noah and, I mean, uh, the, the Noah and the ark. He mentions Jonah and the great fish. The stories everybody says they don't believe. And, and he also speaks of hell more than anybody else in the Bible. So if you say that you believe what Jesus says, you have to come to grips with the fact that he's the one that talks about hell more than anybody else. I did not come to bring peace on the earth, he said, but a sword. You have to do a lot of things that Jesus said. I have a whole sermon series called Difficult Sayings of Jesus because this is what we're dealing with here. Jesus did not say things that are just soft and that we can all get tattooed on ourselves and put up on the wall with a cross stitch. He's challenging to the people of his day because he was intending to save people from hellfire. That's what his problem was. So Jesus says here in the verse, we, do, we get up, up, worked up about the other stuff in the passage, but look at what it says. If your hand, John 9, 43, if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell and to, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot caused you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell and into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where the worm, their worm, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You know, it's interesting. When I read this yesterday, looking at this over, studying some of this, I'm reading it in my mind where the worm does not die. Is that what this says? Is that what the text says? Where the worm does not die? I've quoted it my whole life, where the worm doesn't die. It does not say that, at least in the New King James. It says their worm. What does he mean by their worm? Well, it means the worm that is within them, as it were, that's eating them up. The people in hell have had a worm eating them up before they went to hell. And that worm is how they got there. It's how they got there. Their own lusts and desires, the worm that ate them up, is still eating them up because now in hell they have no way to satisfy it at all. There ain't no beer in hell. Okay? I don't think it's because it's in heaven. I think it's because there's no way to satisfy what you think you needed besides God. You thought you needed something besides God. God said, well, go find out if there's anything that can satisfy you besides me. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Then, and you see, so he says here three times the same thing. The worm doesn't die, their worm doesn't die, and the fire is not quenched. This is a great, this is a picture of eternal misery. That Jesus Christ himself puts forth. Even the book of Revelation at the end, it says, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Hades is not hell. Hades is a place where the dead go when they die. So some people find themselves in torment in Hades. Some find themselves in Hades in paradise, like Jesus did. He said he was going to go to Hades, but he also was going to go to paradise when he died. But this place of the dead at the end of time is cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And, and, and anyone not found... Well, see, here's the thing about this. The Bible says that, yes, Hades contains both the good and the evil, some in torment, some in paradise, 
But the Bible also says, we haven't got time to go through it this morning, that before the, when he comes again from heaven, he goes basically and brings with him the righteous dead. Those who are righteous and dead, he takes out of Hades and they, he brings with them to the earth to judge the earth. And then Hades, where the rest of the dead are, is cast into the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There it is. Anyone not found in the lake of uh, in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There, 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 there are dozens of passages. I don't want to spend the time this morning to put them all up there. But if you begin to look up the passages, and I would suggest not looking them up in the King James version, because the King James version takes two or three Greek words and makes them all the word hell when they don't mean the same thing. I'm not sure why, but more modern versions separate out Hades, for example, from hell and Gehenna from Tartarus and things like that, which is a better understanding of where what these things are. But the final place, the final place of destruction was is called in the Bible Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom. So it was a literal place at one time in the Old Testament period of time where they had outside the city of Jerusalem, down in the valley, there was a place where the, they offered up human sacrifice, child sacrifice. I guess it was a Planned Parenthood place. I'm not sure. Something like that. But, but it's a place where they offered up child sacrifice to Moloch, their god. And I've probably told you before, but Moloch, the representation we have of this god, of the one we have, I think we have the statue, he's a god seated with his hands outstretched like this, and they built a fire underneath his hands. And when the hands got red hot from the fire, they laid babies on there to sacrifice them to their God. This is what the pagans did to appease their God. And you know who did that? Israel did that. God's people did that. And that's when God said, that's enough. He destroyed them. When they turned to sacrifice their own children to Moloch for their own convenience and for their own betterment in their own view because it would make things better. We'd get better crops if we kill our children. People today say, well, we're going to have, we got to have more food, so let's kill the children. Anyway, I'm getting far afield here. I'm pointing out that this pathway is paved, was paved through child sacrifice. And that place became detestable to the ones who came back from captivity. They've been taken away because of that child sacrifice and other sins that they did. And when they came back, they made this into a garbage dump. It's the place where they dump all the garbage and dead animals over that hill into the valley. And it became a place of stench. And it became a place where the fires didn't die. You've all been by the dumps in these two, three counties here and seen all those eternal flames. It's not that John F. Kennedy's up there, you know, with eternal flame on the side of that hill. It's all the gas from all the trash and rotten stuff coming up on the ground. They just put a pipe on it and burn it. Well, they used to. I'm sure that causes global warming. But in any event, that's what the trash, that's why there's a fire associated in this valley. The time of Christ, there was a fire in this valley all the time, smoldering. There was stench. There was maggots there because this is where the dump was. That word Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, became then the word that Jesus uses for this place of eternal punishment. That's how I understand the derivation of the concept of the word that's being used. Now in the Bible there are um, 
three attempts to, three pictures of hell at least, in Jesus' teachings anyway, three pictures of hell. Um, These all deserve lessons of their own. Maybe someday soon we'll do that, but I'm not going to do that this morning. But there are at least these three, and and we can't, my point is, reading what Jesus says, you can't escape dealing with this. It's, It's unpleasant, but there it is. I'll tell you one way people escape it. They just think, well, two things. One, everybody's going to go there. And and what they mean by that is certainly I'm going to go. I'm not going to go there. Nobody's going to go there. And certainly not me. And then the other thing is they make fun of it and say, well, all the beer's there. So I'm going to go. But there's three pictures of hell in the New Testament. One of them is eternal torment. Torment here of not being able to have what you want. Not of being, as it were, chained or all your possibilities of receiving what you want taken away, torment. I don't get the picture that God is intentionally just doing stuff to people in hell that would bring him some kind of gleeful pleasure like the Marquis de Sade. C.S. Lewis, I think, best described hell from my understanding, and perhaps you can put it with this picture. I don't have the quote up here. Basically, hell is the place where God just simply removes himself, puts you, and he removes himself from that place. He basically says that hell is God giving men what they want. You want God to go away and leave you alone? At the end, he will do that. He will finally give you what you want. He will go away and leave you alone. Except you'll realize then, far too late, that without God there, there isn't anything that you want, anything that can satisfy you, and it becomes a place of torment. Because you being you have still have all your desires, that worm doesn't die. The worm, the desire worm, as it were, uh, the worm of desire doesn't die. But it's a place where you can't satisfy it because all good things come from above. So God doesn't have to torment you. He just puts you there. You were made to be with Him. He made you to be with Him. You've rejected that altogether. So He just leaves you alone. It's also a place of utter isolation, outer darkness. The picture here, the visual picture of outer darkness, we don't have much of this until we live in, in cities and different culture, but you have a house in the, uh, a house or a cabin, you know, out here in a yard, and in the house where the father is, is light and merriment and eating and drinking and people being together, a family structure in the house is where God's family is. And outside through the windows at night, you can see light in the yard. There's light near the house. And so the picture is that in the house, for the children of God, there's the light of God and his family there, enjoying each other and enjoying the presence of the Father. And some people in the world are living in a situation where they, they're close enough that they enjoy the light from the window. They get, And that's where we are in the world today. In the world today, every person shares in the blessings of God. Wherever they live and whatever their circumstance, they share some of the light from the window of the blessings of God and God's people. The atheists in the United States of America benefit from God's teaching that all men are created equal, that all should be held accountable for right or wrong. They benefit from the concept of free speech taught in the Bible. They benefit from all these things. They benefit from the morality that God's taught people to live, to love your neighbor as yourself. All the people are talking about loving your neighbor Where do they get that in the world? Where do you get that in nature? Love your neighbor. How does nature and atheism teach you to love your neighbor? 
There's nothing in nature that says all men are created equal or that you should love your neighbor. That came from God. That came from Christianity. And they're still enjoying, they bask in the light of this doctrine, preach it like they invented it, like Karl Marx came up with it or Carl Sagan came up with it. So they're basking in the light of God's glory and they still enjoy the benefits. They're on the outside, on the outside edge, seeing they're in the yard. But then he says to some, when he finally brings an end to the dinner, he says, take this person and cast him into the outer darkness. That meant you get him away from my house so far that he can't even see the light through the windows. He's in the outer darkness where there's no light from my house to shine upon him. This is the picture of the Bible of hell. God will remove those who rebel against him, do not want him interfering in their life, telling them what to do so they can be themselves. And he will remove them to the outer darkness. Utter isolation. It's funny, and funny in a kind of a weird way, that the buzzword of so many people who hate God and especially hate Jesus Christ as Christianity is community. They just love that word community. Is there any community outside of Christ? There isn't. What we see in the world is biting and fighting, and devouring, turfs against LGBs and all the... Everybody is at each other's throat because it's there's no real community. Like I said... You can't get all men are created equal and all everybody should be treated. You can't get that from science. What what dogma of science teaches you that all men are created equal and they should all be given respect? They should, we should love. There's no dogma in science that can teach you that. But there's no community outside the true community of God and His love and His under and His teaching about what man really is, who you really are, and who that neighbor of yours really is. God's teaching tells you that. Now, do Christians live up to the command, the, the, to, to the demands of that teaching? They often don't, do not. Do not get me wrong here. But it's still there, written down in His Word. And those who follow Christ are called back to that teaching constantly in their life and rebuked for neglecting it. But in, in the world, there's no real community. And so you have then personal disintegration. They will be destroyed. They're lost and they will be destroyed. The one thing that we are seeking in our society is personal integration, personal value. But outside of God who's making you who you say you are and all the other things, there's just nothing there. And so hell is the loss of the personality. It's a, it's a true loss of a disintegration. John 3, 6 basically says he, well, it doesn't basically say it. It says that he who believes in the spirit, he who believes in the son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. All that is outside of Christ is the wrath of God. Now the objection is made to that is, well, God didn't have any right to be angry at me. I'm a nice person. That, that's the thing that needs to be examined right there. The wrath of God abides upon all men because all men have sinned against their creator. They've all sinned. And you can tell me that other people sin worse than you do. We can have a debate about that. I, I don't know. You, you might convince me, but like I tell people all the time, I, I'm not the one you got to work. People apologize to me for cursing around me. I tell them, I'm not the one whose name you just used in vain. It's not my name that you cursed. 
Why are you telling me? Why are you apologizing to me for the filthy, foul language you use? There's someone else you need to apologize to. And that's what we forget. So you could convince me you're not a very bad sinner, but I'm not the judge. Jesus Christ says there's one that will judge you in the last day. The word that I've spoken will judge you in the last day. Oh, but I don't believe that word. Okay, you have to take your chances then. The Bible says, among other things, an interest, and ran across this in some recent thinking. I think it fits here. That men are inexcusable. Or the Bible uses the words without excuse. There is a word apologia, forms of that word in the Bible. We get the word apology from that, an apology. And more in academic circles, apologetic, which is a defense of something. Lawyers make apologetics for their clients, defenses of them. And that's what the word meant in Greek, a defense. So you would, uh, we call it when we, the field of, Defending Christianity against its critics is called the field of apologetics, but it's also used in secular academic cases of apologia and other words like that. Well, this word is a-apologia. Well, it's really an-apologia without excuse. No excuse. And the Bible says this two times. It says it in Romans 1. Verse 20, we've used this in our other lessons. For the creations, the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Speaking specifically of the Gentiles, they have no excuse. He says here, men can see the creation of God and his working in the world, and they are without excuse not to believe in God and understand his great power and divinity, that he's different than them. They're without excuse. Evidence has been shown to them. And we could talk about that for a long time, about how that is actually true situation that you're in. I love, I love watching these nature shows. And, and I'm not, as you know, I do, I keep bees. So on these bee forums, all the amazing things about honeybees, which I could regale you with for hours about all the, poor Judy, all the amazing things that honeybees do, and, and and the usual thing is, well, evolution has designed this. Evolution, isn't evolution wonderful that did this? And if you just substituted God for the word evolution, it would make sense. But evolution can't design a honeybee because it has, it's nothing. And they'll tell you when you push it, people like, oh, well, evolution is nothing. It, it's just a fact. It isn't, it isn't a force. Evolution is not a force. See, they want to make evolution Something is sitting back there thinking, well, how can I make this little sea urchin do better? I'll tell you what, I'll do this. That's God. That's not evolution. That's God. But that's that's what they make evolution to be. Some thought process behind it. That's called intelligent design, by the way. But you're without excuse to not look at the world and say there's something superior to man and more powerful than man that I ought to think about and find in this case. So we're without excuse. And then the other time it's used, in the next chapter of the book of Romans, only two times it's used. He talks to the Jews in this case. He says, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. 
You practice the same things and therefore you are condemned because you do the things that you condemn other people of. You know, uh, hang on a minute here. I wanted to find the word I was looking for here. This is an interesting proposition. The thought process behind, behind this whole thing. Suppose God were to, uh, put an invisible tape recorder on you, a digital recorder around your neck. Or, oh, what's coming? There's going to implant one in your arm. It's a digital recorder. And, uh, it will record everything that you say to other people about how they should act and what they should do. It'll make a recording of that. Okay? And so, as you go through life, it'll, it'll say, well, I can't believe that person did this. I could you see that she did that? How could she do this? How could he do that? I can't believe that. And makes these recordings. And in the judgment day, God just simply takes their corner, plays back what you've said about other people, and says, okay, the only thing I need to judge you is what you said about other people. I'm just going to take these things that you said, things that you thought that other people ought to be doing, and we're just going to look at your life in light of those things. I don't need the rest of the Bible. We'll just take what you said. How would that work out for you, you think? Would you be any better off? You don't like the Bible? Well, let's just take the things you've said about other people, how they ought to be, and what how mad you got because they didn't do something that they were supposed to do. I mean, you can start with complaining about what a waitress at a restaurant does or doesn't do, you know, all the way down and compare it to your life. You see, this won't work out. This is this is what we're like, though. What we do is we apply all these great standards we have, all these lofty and noble ideas, e- even things like race and gender and all that. We, we, we don't apply them to ourselves, though. We apply them to everybody else especially our enemies. And in the end, God can take those things and he says, you are without any excuse. There's no reason for you. And you know, I just hated that when I was a kid and my dad would call me on the carpet. We didn't have any carpet, but literally, figuratively onto the carpet. Carpet was for rich people. Uh, You know. (laughs) Am I wrong about that back there in the time? No, I'm not wrong. I know young people can't imagine because now they want bare floors because carpet's for poor people. But I remember a time when carpet was for rich people. My grandmother, her day, you swept off a dirt floor. So, you know, you swept the dirt off a dirt floor. Imagine that. But in any event, he called me on the carpet and he, he would make it, he would make it seem like I had no excuse for what I did. I just hated that. When he made it seem like, to all appearances, I had no excuse for what I did. Well, you know what the fact was? I had no excuse for what I did. And he just made it, he just made it obvious to everybody who was listening that I had no excuse for doing that. And I hated that. And you felt like squirming away. But I'm not going to be dealing with my dad and the day of judgment. My dad loved me. He, he would, you know, he, well, when he was whipping, he even said he loved me when he was whipping me. But imagine that. No, I'm not going to be dealing with God then. So this is our condition. We're inexcusable without excuse. 
So the two things that are inexcusable according to Paul are, first, a refusal to live by what God declares through natural revelation in creation. And second, insistence upon applying that same standard to other people. So you say natural revelation can't tell me what to do. And this same natural revelation is most certainly binding on you. So it can't tell me what to do, but it's binding on you. We see this in the political world all the time now, don't we? You want to know why the political party is... If you look at what a political party accuses the other one of doing, you can almost be sure that they're doing that very thing themselves. Okay? This is the human condition. It isn't politicians who have this problem. And God just points this out, and this is why he is perfectly just in condemning us all to go away, go away from him. Go away. You got what you want. I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to leave you alone, and I'm never coming back. And that's why there'll be weeping and wailing, because he's never coming back. He told you he was coming back. You didn't believe him. Now he's really not coming back. I thought something that, I read something interesting a while back. I don't know whether I showed you this before or not. This is a fellow named Moore, I think. I forgot to put the reference here. I want you to think about this as we get ready to close the lesson this morning. All the hell you shall ever have. Consider, this is an old, it's got old language. In other words, it's beyond a seventh grade vocabulary. Consider that the trials and troubles, the calamities and miseries, the crosses and losses that you meet with in this world are all the hell that you shall ever have. Speaking to Christians. Here you have your hell. Hereafter you shall have your heaven. This is the worst of your condition. The best is to come. Lazarus had his hell first. His heaven last. But Dives, the rich man, had his heaven first and his hell at last in Luke 16. You have all your pangs and pains and throes here that you shall ever have. Your ease and rest and pleasure is to come. Here you have all your bitter, your sweet is to come. Here you have all your sorrows, your joys are to come. Here you have all your winter nights, your summer days are yet to come. Here you have your passion week, your ascension day is to come. Here you have your evil things, that your good things are to come. Death will put a period to all your sins and to all thy sufferings, and it will be an inlet to those joys, delights, and contents that shall never have an end. And therefore, hold thy peace and be silent before the Lord. I love that thought. What you suffered in this life at the hands of other men and even your own doing. If you're faithful to Christ and believe in his word and, and do what you can to obey him, this is the worst it's ever going to be. Can you bear it knowing that? Don't that doctors tell you that when they're going to do something to you? This is going to hurt. But you know what they mean by that is, and it'll stop hurting as soon as I'm, when I'm done. Yes, it hurts here. But this is the worst it's going to be if you love Christ. And if you don't, this is the best it's ever going to be. You go to those funerals of wicked people who have cursed the name of the Lord and live that way. And you hear them preaching to heaven, oh, I'm glad their suffering is over. And I have to tell you, I feel ashamed of this. I feel ashamed because when I hear that, I think, oh no, their suffering is just beginning. It's just now beginning. Yes, they suffered in this life. Just don't take that away. But without Christ, 
their suffering is yet to come. Don't let this happen to you. Don't serve yourself to the point that you lose yourself completely and you don't have anything. There's nothing left to say. You know, we can save ourselves, not by ourselves, but through Jesus Christ. We find this in Acts chapter 2 as we close. He says, uh, I just went too far, sorry. Now when they heard this, this is in Acts chapter 2, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent, turn around, turn away from what you've been doing. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Save yourselves from this perverse generation. And then they who gladly received his word were baptized. And in that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. This can be true for you this morning if you want to turn away from a life of self-interest and learn to slowly crucify what you want and love what the Lord wants. And what you find when you do that, the little bit I've done, I find that I've been wrong. That what I want is so inferior and cheap and painful compared to what the Lord will offer me. You can learn to love what the Lord loves and follow him, if you will. So we can baptize you to Christ this morning. You can begin that journey, that process, if you will. All things are ready. The Lord doesn't require anything of you but that desire and a willingness to obey. So if we can help you this morning, if we can pray with you about a sin that you've committed that you need forgiveness for, come down here to the front row and we'll help you. Let's stand and sing.